Welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. I'm very excited about my guest today, uh, my friend Kostin Ryu, who is Global Director of Kaspersky Lab's great team, Global Research and Analysis team. Kostin has been described as the man from another planet, uh, widely hailed and recognized as one of the best at hunting APTs. Kostin, welcome to the show. And I wanted to start with this uh, article that was published on Ars Technica by Andrada Fiskutian. Is that, did I say your name right? <laughs> Fiskutsano, yes. Fiskutsano. Uh, on the adventures of Lab ED011. Uh, uh, this is where you got your grounding in, in, in security. This was a, a university project that you were also involved in. Can you talk a little bit about Lab ED011 in Romania and your first foray into tinkering with computers? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this was um, around the year 1998. Um, and if you if you look at Romania in 98, it was uh, uh, just let's say um, less than 10 years after the revolution. So people were let's say just out of the communism, and everybody had like this hunger for information. Um, for for, for, I, the, for the kids listening, when you say revolution, you're talking about 19. 1989, when uh, the president of uh, Romania was overthrown, it was a pretty significant um, political yeah. moment in your life. Uh, absolutely, in the life, uh, in my life, and the life of pretty much uh, everybody else in Romania. Just to get, a, let's say, an idea of how things uh, were before um, the revolution, it was um, extremely, extremely hard to find. Uh, even basic things like food, drinks. Uh, we didn't have uh, electricity. There were like outages uh, for more uh, sometimes uh, than half of a day. We didn't have uh, heat in the winter. So things were like uh, pretty tough. But of course, there was all this uh, communist uh, indoctrination, censorship. And people were just, let's say, not able to access information uh, from the West. But here's the thing, though, and I and, 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 and this is fascinating to me because I interviewed Ivan Arce on the podcast. Ivan is a kind of a pentest legend uh, security researcher from the early, early days in Argentina. And he talked about, you know, the absence of tools, absence of access to computer systems, access, absence of things that really drove them to tinker and drove them to hack and drove them to figure things out on their own. Do you get a sense that your experience was similar to his where in that communist era where there are no access to technology for kids growing up that you that that forced you to figure out how to pirate software here or figure out how to hack into something here just to be able to use it was that a similar experience for you yeah yeah actually i think maybe this is one of the let's say positive sides of communism in in the sense that uh, by let's say taking away the um, access of people to things like computers internet and so on uh, the people become kind of desperate to to get there so there's like a very strong competition just again to give you an, an idea um, i went to study at the computer science faculty uh, in bucharest and to get there to get uh, into the faculty there was like uh, uh, extremely, extremely hard. So you had to get very high grades and out maybe of uh, 1,000 people, only maybe about 200 uh, would get in. Um, and pretty much everything was uh, driven by a very strong um, kind of competition, uh, which again can be traced back to this uh, communist uh, mentality. But again, as you're right? saying, yeah, yeah, as you're saying, um, 
this uh, actually drove people to fight harder in a sense or uh, as you're saying learn more skills or just kind of you know try to escape um, this bubble try to escape the black hole and it's true that actually a lot of us uh, went to work in the west uh, in other countries uh, just uh, immediately after Romania uh, borders became open why did you decide to specialize in security or did you was that a, a university yeah. decision how did you <laughs> segue away into this industry for me it was like uh, back around the 1994 when uh, i was still in high school and i wrote my first antivirus um someone contacted me uh, well, and offered to sell it you're going a little too fast you're in high school you wrote your first av product how did you reach how did you get there like how did you get to the point like you know what i need to write my own mm. as a high school kid um, You it was an idea. It's not normal, right? Uh, looks normal <laughs> to me. I don't know. <laughs> um, so what happened was that again, this let's say the uh, university thing, of course, can be traced back to high school in the sense that in high school uh, we've had a computer network. Uh, let's say a few two eight six computers, if you remember those, or if people remember them, and we we had a three eight six novel I'm- server. I'm older than you. <laughs> uh, of course, of course, but not by much. <laughs> yeah, uh, and so I you, have more have... Uh, gray hair. Yeah, that's true. So you did have access um, to, to 286 machines, and this is high school days. Oh. Yeah, yeah. And they got infected. It was quite simple. They got infected with a pretty uh, nasty malware uh, called Bad Sectors. Uh, so what it, this malware was doing was marking uh, sectors on the floppy disk as bad. So slowly, like the amount of uh, available space on your floppy disks uh, would just uh, go down and further down. And, uh, people were kind of losing space. Uh, so from 1.44 megabytes, which was like the uh, space available on a uh, 3.0 inch floppy drive uh, this would like you know go to 1.2 1.1 and so on it was quite terrible uh, the problem was that no uh, antivirus back in those days was able to catch and remove this virus uh, back then we were using like fprod uh, mcafee antivirus uh, thunderbite just to uh, remember some names that's what the landscape uh, looked like at the time for, yeah. for security software on well Windows. the thing was that we were getting updates like uh, once per month so uh, nowadays people have like hourly updates right or even uh, like real time cloud based protection back then we'd get updates like uh, once per month whenever a floppy drive made its way from germany or or so right 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 Um, so what I did, I stayed up uh, one night and uh, wrote my first antivirus to clean the high school network. So I was like, I remember I was so stressed uh, because I was um, afraid that somebody else in the high school would actually be faster than me and come up with an antivirus before I can. Again, it was like this competition between us: who who is the fastest, who's the best coder, who's the best programmer, and so on. Did you have experience at that time already analyzing malware or was this just an intellectual exercise for you to just try to figure out what's happening and how can I stop it? I did have experience with assembler so assembler was um, something which I've always been interested in so I learned um, assembler on the uh, Z80 so the CPU in, mm-hmm. in the spectrum and then I learned the Intel uh, X86 assembler uh, as soon as I got my first uh, 286 machine and this of course it helped me reverse engineer this malware the bad sectors virus and uh, create a, a fix for it is that engine still around um, what became of that 
what you need to do is like if you search for M scan, so this was like the name of the uh, antivirus back then, M scan, like uh, my scan. Mm-hmm. Where, um, later, this became uh, RAV, uh, so-called Romanian antivirus, which uh, was sold to Microsoft. Was and that part of the, uh, GCAD, that, the GCAD yeah. acquisition, right, right, right. That was in the, in the early nineties or mid nineties. Yes, uh, it was uh, in the two thousands, uh, around two thousand three, if I remember correctly. Did you work at GCAD? Uh, yeah, I did between ninety six and two thousand. So MScan became RAV, which was owned mm-hmm. by GCAD at the time. Yeah. That was sold to Microsoft, and you you worked at Microsoft, or did you leave right then? No, I left, left GKD in 2000. Uh, yes, okay. I left three three years before the acquisition. So uh, the product was sold to Microsoft uh, roughly three years after I left. And, and of course, well, Microsoft took the, uh, the engine, took the software, and um, turned it into Defender, which you can now find in pretty much... Uh, all latest versions of Windows. Yeah, it ships by default in Windows. Became Defender. It's also now powering their ATP, which is their uh, anti-APT product, so to speak, uh, for the Windows mm-hmm. ecosystem. So it's really interesting to watch what RAV has become, you know, as you watch this stuff over the years. And you ended up at Kaspersky Lab. And I wanted to talk to you about your, you know, how you got your feet wet in analyzing malware at Kaspersky Lab. And this shift that happened around 2009, 2010 to heavily focus on APT, advanced targeted attacks. When did you know? Uh, do you remember a moment in time or uh, a time during your work that you knew that this was, uh, the, this APT attacks, advanced targeted attacks, uh, was starting to explode? There were nation states involved with it. And, um, and this would become a big challenge for you and your team. When when did that shift happen in your head? Well, I, I think it happened um, with the Aurora attack, if you remember, mm-hmm. this um, massive attack against Google and a few other companies in the U.S., uh, which um, uh, resulted in Google uh, pulling out of China. Uh, I hear they're going back now, by the way. So I think it's that, not only that Google, was... though, but there were a lot of big companies that were hit at the time, I believe. Uh, oh, yeah, sure. Uh, there were about 30-something um, other companies that got hit as well. Um, what I remember, it was um, quite interesting. Uh, by the way, I'll just to make a, a side point here, is that uh, what the hackers uh, got from Google, so pretty much the first thing they uh, they got from there was the FISA database, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act uh, database uh, at Google, which Google obviously uh, needs to implement uh, in order to comply with the uh, U.S. law. So that was pretty much the first thing that the uh, Chinese hackers uh, got from Google. Um, but yeah, that was a moment when I when I realized there's like something big going on, obviously, and this is going to affect us. But let's say I was not entirely convinced. Uh, there were like other bigger things going on. And to be honest, I was still focusing on uh, stuff such as banking threats, uh, which seemed uh, quite important to me. Uh, drive-by exploits, uh, malicious websites, uh, which let's say they're part of uh, pretty much this all this malware ecosystem, but not necessarily uh, uh, specific to nation-state attacks. Uh, yeah, I remember the time you were working on like uh, uh, fake Twitter accounts, researching social media threats. You and I would 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 podcast 
back in the day on some of that stuff. So Aurora happens and was there a realization in your head that, you know, you guys needed to set up a specialized team to work on uh, analyzing APTs and trying to figure out what's going on, figure out detection and mitigation? Um, I think that segged right into Stuxnet right after, which was around 2009, 2010. It was, yeah, it was, I guess, a moment when uh, we came uh, by Stuxnet, when Stuxnet was discovered that we uh, realized that we'll need... uh, a specialized team, and that's pretty much how uh, great the global research and analysis team was uh, formed in Kaspersky Lab. We uh, brought together some of the best people uh, we've had around the world, reverse engineers, malware experts, and so on, and uh, created a uh, an international team of experts uh, which can tackle sophisticated threats. And then things exploded. Uh, from yeah. 2009, 2010 through 2018, we've gotten much, much better visibility of at what that uh, attack landscape looks like. I don't know where to start to talk to you about this mm-hmm. because we've been through these trenches before and, you know, a lot of your research became very, very big news. What are you most proud of? What is the discovery or the work you did on a specific attack that you're most proud of? The one that was incredibly difficult, just taxing emotionally difficult to put together the right set of people to research it just your own basic understanding of what the threat was what was the one that sticks in your mind um, i would say it was the uh, red october attack um, it was um, a targeted attack we uh, started investigating in october 2012 uh, has the name october of 2012 was a very very hot month in romania so when uh, we came uh, by this malware uh, we decided to call it Red October, obviously, because it was hot and uh, because of the reference to this very well-known movie with uh, Sean Connery. Uh, now, why was it um, such a tricky issue? I think um, it was the first time that uh, we discovered, let's say, an APT which was never published before, and we realized it was pretty big. I mean, the loader itself was uh, what most people would uh, see uh, on their computers, but then we realized the loader would connect to the CNC and download like um, probably up to 100 different uh, plugins from the CNC. And that part, I think that very few people uh, realized. I mean, other people wrote about Red October afterwards, but they didn't realize how sophisticated the whole platform was. So um, we put together like a team to look into all the different plugins, analyzing uh, hundreds, if not thousands of different files uh, to understand how they work, how they communicate. And I think probably the most important part here was that uh, we realized that Red October was a cyber espionage campaign uh, done by uh, Russian-speaking attackers. Um, So... Of course, we were wondering uh, if anybody else uncovered the Russian-speaking cyber espionage operation before, and we couldn't find uh, anything. So we were effectively the first company and the first uh, team to publish about the Russian cyber espionage campaign in uh, the beginning of 2013 in January when we published it. And you talked about the sophistication of Red October. Since then, uh, we've seen uh, APT campaigns uh, with much more sophisticated elements and components. What is one that you would say to this day still stumps you? Uh, and I know, you know, we've been through uh, multiple uh, releases of these, uh, doing the research, putting out the publication, releasing IOCs and Yara rules. 
Uh, we, I, I can go back to Gauss, where there was still a missing component. Uh, Dooku 2, there were some components about, uh, there were some components, I believe, tied to an ICS component that we still don't know what it is. Do you, re- what is, what is one, one bit of research you still feel like you don't have a, quite a handle on it and it still sticks in your craw? Like, why can't we figure this one out? I think we, we got pretty much all of them figured. Uh, maybe we haven't seen like the full picture of some things like, uh, the equation uh, report we uh, published in February 2015. I don't think we've seen pretty much uh, everything uh, in that regards. Um, or another very interesting case is uh, Wild Neutron, which is one of my uh, favorite uh, APT groups. Explain this, what Wild Neutron is, because it's also um, very interesting to me, but I don't think for the audience these names sometimes can just fly over people's yeah. head. Um, so... In the middle of 2012, um, four big American companies, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Apple, and Microsoft, announced uh, they got hacked. And uh, the way got, they got hacked was uh, through a Java Zero Day, which installed uh, both uh, Windows and Mac malware. Um, and the attackers uh, who uh, ran this operation were, let's say, not just, let's say, some random uh, Chinese APT group, which was... Uh, the case uh, back in 2012 when most of the zero-day attacks were were like that. Uh, There was something a lot, a lot more sophisticated. And we started looking into this group uh, more thoroughly in 2014. Um, And uh, we still haven't fully uh, figured out who they were or exactly uh, how they were working or, let's say, uh, what was uh, their main goal besides... uh, let's say, compromising uh, high-profile entities uh, and companies. Do you think, uh, you, you, I know you still believe that that's kind of economic espionage. There was some sort of, uh, that that had no sort of geopolitical leanings, which is the majority of the attacks you see. You have a suspicion that this might be uh, economically motivated, just going after information for mergers and acquisitions or, or yeah. funding or just, just collecting information on economic and funding issues in the industry. Right, right. But there were also things which didn't make sense about uh, Wild Neutron. For instance, um, they uh, hacked and waterholed a uh, terrorist forum, the Ansar al-Mujahedin forum, and they uh, put the zero day there and infected the people who were browsing the forum. Um, also, they uh, hacked and uh, waterhauled the FlexiSpy forum. FlexiSpy is right. one of wasn't these. There, uh, wasn't there like an uh, iPhone dev kit uh, website? Well, iPhone that dev. one too. I think yeah. uh, that's how um, Apple got infected. But there was also uh, the FlexiSpy forum. And FlexiSpy is one of these tools uh, that people use to spy on their spouses. And the Wild Neutron guys hacked the uh, FlexiSpy forum and uh, yeah, put the zero day there and uh, infected. Uh, customers of LexisPy. Uh, so yeah, I can understand the uh, hacking of merger and acquisitions, uh, law companies, but there are things which, uh, let's say, don't make sense make here, sense, such yeah. as yeah, hacking of terrorist forums of uh, LexisPy or like satellite uh, piracy forums where you know people uh, share uh, software to decrypt uh, satellite TV stations and such. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean the the whole satellite hacking and and I mean we I, I, we don't have time to go through all the APT campaigns that you've researched and published about, um, but I wanted to ask you a question and I, and, and it's something that I, I try to get 
visibility from a lot of folks like you in the industry is out of everything we've seen and we know about as it relates to APT uh, campaigns, what percentage of all active campaigns do you believe we know something about? And what percentage do you think is out there working, it's doing its magic, and that you have zero, zero visibility on? Well, I think we can look at this question. And when I say you, I'm not talking you specifically. Not you specifically, but the industry. But the whole industry, uh, you uh, mean? Uh, all the Mandian folks, CrowdStrike, Palo Alto, Cisco, everyone well, looking at this stuff. Everything they've seen so far, do you believe they've seen everything that exists? Do you believe there's a certain percentage of things that are still not yet found and undocumented? I think that um, if we take any of these companies um, that you mentioned or us uh, alone, I think everybody sees maybe between uh, 50 and 75% of uh, what's going on. Even if we bring pretty much everybody together, I still think they uh, see maybe up to 85, uh, maybe, um, I don't know, 90% of uh, what's going on. Really? You think For sure. That yeah. If we, uh, if we bring everybody together. Yeah, everyone well, looking. You know, everyone looking. I'm trying to get a sense. Is. Yeah, it's impossible. But I'm trying to get a sense in your mind. What is, what is silently working that you just have no idea of? Of course, yeah. you can't properly answer it. You can't prove a negative. But how do you... Where do you see the ability so, and skill of everyone else to find everything? Maybe one of the reasons why I say ninety percent is just because of the like the total is so big. We're like talking about hundreds of different uh, uh, ongoing campaigns, right? How many uh, ongoing so even, campaigns you're tracking right now? Uh, we're talking like over a hundred. I would say a hundred between one and two hundred uh, ongoing uh, campaigns and actors. Uh, sometimes we're not sure um, if a campaign is associated with a known actor or if it's a new one. So that's why I say uh, between one and 200 different uh, campaigns and actors. Right, but uh, yeah, the whole, what I meant is the whole, you know, the big picture, the pie is so big that even uh, 10% that we are not seeing is still probably we're talking about a dozen or so uh, big things we're not seeing. What surprises you when you look at this 100 plus campaigns and actors? Uh, is there something that surprises you about a certain geography doing it that, you know, made you go, hmm, interesting that these guys are also delving into this or nothing surprises you? Give me a sense of, based on what you see, where you raise your eyebrows and say, hmm. <laughs> well, um, I, I, like, I would say nothing surprises me anymore because I've seen so many things, especially with all this... Uh, uh, leaks and publications, you know, which ones I'm referring to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, but in many cases, when you read something, you read like a, a document, let's say on The Intercept, about uh, some kind of uh, man in the middle or man on the side, zero-day capability, right? And then you discover it yourself, let's say, happening in the wild. It's a very different thing to read it uh, in a PDF or on a website, and it's quite different from seeing it happen and understanding the powers uh, behind it and the fact that, uh, you know, uh, attackers all around the world, not say just in one place, they have access to fiber optics, to satellite communications, intercepting fiber optics uh, at huge speeds, obviously, uh, passively storing all that information for months and, uh, uh, you know, tracking and profiling people as they uh, click uh, websites on the internet, as they use cookies and so on. So understanding the things which happen in the background uh, is 
what I say, what makes me uh, raise uh, the eyebrow. I sometimes have a little bit of a beef with you because when you t- speak or write about APT attacks, a lot of times you talk about this thing is very sophisticated. This is might be one of the most sophisticated really we've ever seen. Mm-hmm. On the back end, it's almost always a spear phishing attack requiring mm-hmm. someone to click on something. In some cases, requiring someone to even enable a macro in a Word document. Uh, it's like so basic and rudimentary. Uh, and and when how, how do you delineate, delineate this in your brain where it's, you know, this is just rudimentary, basic uh, infection technique, and I still call it sophisticated. How does that play in your mind? Or, or are you calling it sophisticated based on the entire complexity of the entire project to counter this argument that, you know, APTs are not sophisticated. It's a basic phishing attack. I think there's a disconnect there between how people view this. Yeah, well... We, we try to call um, advanced, okay? The A in APT uh, stands, uh, stands for advanced, right? So uh, we only call something advanced if, for instance, let's say they use zero days. Uh, access and the ability to use zero days, in my opinion, Put is uh, what category. makes... Yeah, that's, that's the advanced uh, category. Or uh, the ability to tap uh, internet connection or satellite uh, internet connections like the Turla guys uh, have. Uh, that's, in my opinion, that's advanced, right? Uh, ability to infect BIOS, firmware, hard drive firmware, like the uh, equation group, that is advanced. Pretty much, let's say, any capability which only one group has, but uh, nobody else has been able to replicate, can also stand for advanced, in my opinion. But sure, there are this doesn't change the fact that there are so many groups out there which still use phishing, still use, you know, you need to click here to enable macros and so on. And they, it still works and they still get uh, lucky and uh, even without uh, using any zero days, they can achieve pretty much the same as uh, more sophisticated groups uh, achieve uh, by investing uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. Help a security director at a mid to large size organization understand how he can use your work and the intel that you're putting out, IOCs, Yara rules, uh, to go hunting in, the, in their organization. Is it a, is it a, a trivial thing to do? Uh, to use the data that you're providing for uh, folks to go threat hunting? Or do you think that that's like a, a, a kind of specialized skill only available to few folks? Or do, are you starting to see more and more big companies uh, add this capability to their tools and their you know personnel in their organizations? Well, based on um, some of the discussions I've had with uh, uh, CSOs, CIOs from uh, pretty much around the world, uh, I think that actually doing this is not hard, but uh, not, let's say, many people do it. Um, I'll give you an example. If there's a small company, medium small, maybe uh, 10, 15, 20 people, right? Um, They just don't have enough resources uh, to dedicate uh, time to implement, uh, let's say, tools and software to effectively leverage threat intelligence knowledge like the one we produce. Uh, this kind of changes when we're talking about bigger companies with uh, more, let's say, than 500 employees. Uh, but even in that case, uh, I realize that uh, what people want, they just want like some kind of a box or some kind of software they can just install uh, and forget about it, something which will solve the problem by itself. Then there's uh, maybe a very small percentage uh, 
of companies and uh, people who realize that if you want to tackle, let's say, that 0.01% of the, uh, the attacks, which are the most sophisticated ones, then you, you probably need to have your own uh, security operations center and you need to have people with the uh, knowledge about APT attacks and uh, people who know how to, to hunt for this. However, what I think is that um, lately there's more and more tools that people can use quite easily, such as Sysmon, for instance. Sysmon uh, from Microsoft, the tool uh, created by Mark Rusinovich, is uh, pretty much amazing for uh, hunting unknown threats if you know how to, to leverage it. Uh, then there's uh, stuff as uh, Suricata and Bro, for instance, which help you a lot, even Yara from Victor Manuel Alvarez is a priceless tool. You just released a new report on um, on the Lazarus Group out of North Korea. Uh, you just, I believe, had the first discovery of a Mac uh, Mac OS implant uh, being used by that group. The first time you're seeing uh, uh, targets in the Mac platform. Yeah, it's the first By time we, we or anybody sees uh, the Lazarus group uh, targeting uh, Mac computers. What is the significance of that? Um, well, if we look back, let's say uh, only two years uh, when the uh, Lazarus group started making the the really big headlines. I mean, obviously, they've made the, the headlines before. We remember the Sony Pictures attack, uh, of course. Uh, but when uh, when they started hitting banks, I think that was uh, when pretty much everybody uh, and their cats started uh, hearing about the Lazarus group. So if you look back at these groups' uh, activities during the uh, last two years, uh, we realized that uh, they've... Uh, They've been able to develop their capabilities at uh, pretty much amazing speed. So, um, of course, uh, they have exploits. They have access to exploits. Uh, they have access to custom malware, um, all sorts of tools uh, they use uh, during bank attacks, which allows them to steal money or transfer money through the SWIFT matter. But... Uh, the development of Mac malware is, let's say, another kind of check mark, which uh, kind of propagates them into the advanced category. So when you have an APT group which has implants for, let's say, different operating systems, not just, uh, let's say, Windows, but they also they can target uh, Mac, they can target uh, uh, Linux, then we're talking about, let's say, an advanced group here. Did we, as an industry, overlook that capability from uh, uh, from that group? You, you know, you mentioned uh, the bank robberies in the beginning, and they're now uh, hitting a level of sophisticating sophistication that you didn't expect. Were, were, were they largely overlooked? Uh, I, I don't think we uh, we didn't expect it. Um, by the way, just to go back to. Um, our initial discussion about uh, Andrada's uh, article and the communism. Uh, one of the conclusions in her article is that uh, it was the, let's say, very tough uh, environment and the very tough conditions and times which uh, produced some of the best hackers in the world uh, in Romania in the early 90s. Uh, so we were wondering uh, yesterday if uh, maybe the same is happening right now in North Korea because uh, uh, there's a lot of intelligent people, for sure, uh, working under very tough conditions. For sure, there's a terrible competition 
it could be like uh, driven or motivated by simple things such as food or uh, a better apartment or a better salary and uh, this drives innovation probably more than uh, anything else more than anything else uh-huh. so maybe this is what we are seeing with the with the Lazarus guys yeah it's it's pretty interesting it's really interesting to see how they've kind of fragmented as well doing different things and it's it's fascinating to watch the quote unquote inside baseball of all of that um, um yeah like if you let's say in the beginning we we've, we've had this Lazarus group um uh when they started um hitting banks we coined well pretty much identify the subgroup of Lazarus we call blue norov specializing on uh, bank attacks but then uh, uh FISA from Korea from South Korea identified the other another group uh, they call Andarial another subgroup of Lazarus um and to be honest at the moment we are not even uh, entirely sure which one of these different Lazarus subgroups is responsible for the for the uh, Mac uh, Lazarus malware it may be Andarial or maybe even yet another new a uh, subgroup they put together uh, just for this task just that's interesting just for uh, to clarify this uh, uh mac uh malware they're using is this exploiting a vulnerability on the mac platform uh is this something that apple needs to fix just to clarify and and and, mm-hmm. and clear up they're not really exploiting uh, any vulnerability here so the way you get infected here is uh, maybe um, cunning but not very uh, sophisticated in the sense um, there is a website um, which distributes an application called uh, Celas Trade Pro uh, which uh, allegedly is a uh, cryptocurrency trading application um it may like even be a real application in the sense that it does appear to have uh, functionality however it also has this hidden functionality that it connects to the Celas uh, website and uh, sends a profile of your computer and if you're interesting uh, enough for the attackers then you get uh, the um, more let's say uh, powerful malware known as fall chill which was uh, also reported by the US cert uh, mm-hmm. in 2018 one of the main lazarus tools So we know they're active and we know they're beefing up their infrastructure and tools and so on. Why haven't we seen more quote unquote big announcements? I I believe after we can go through Stocksnet, through Flame, through Gauss, through Equation Group, Animal Farm, Carreto, all those big 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 campaigns. Uh your team has been pretty active year year after year coming out to these new discoveries and these new big announcements but things have quieted down is it because there aren't new ones or is it because you 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 haven't found them yet is it more difficult to find give me a sense of where your head and your team head is at as it relates to where advanced adversaries are going which directions they're going and is that a challenge for you to follow them and track them or is it uh, where are we now why aren't we hearing more of these big 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 announcements and discoveries um well one way um, to put it is let's say or, uh, or are you finding what things that you're bigger? keeping are you finding things bigger? that you're not telling us about uh, absolutely we we do find things but um, well for sure there's like a lot of interesting things and as you probably know we uh, uh, started uh, writing private reports uh, roughly about 2 years ago when we uh, when we realized at some point that there is a 
uh, saturation of news about APT attacks. Uh, so we would, let's say, we'd publish um, an article about uh, a new APT attack and very few people care. So most, let's say, of the people don't care anymore. It's just yet another APT attack. On the other hand, the information was obviously uh, valuable. So that's when uh, we've decided to monetize uh, all this knowledge and created the threat intelligence offering. So we what do, do, what, what do I still get find to, things. What do I get when I purchase access to these private reports? What's the value to the, to the, audio, to the reader, to the customer? Well, in, in terms of deliverables, you get uh, three main things. You get uh, reports with knowledge about um, actors, attacks, uh, and things such as TTPs. How often are um, you pushing out these reports? And in, 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 in some cases, it might be just like a little update to a tool set that a group has been using or a little update to some domains they may have registered to use for CNCs. Like those are the types of reports you're putting out to give people some sort of heads up on what what could be coming. Or you're trying to provide that extension of the security team that gives them a little bit of these early warnings that gives them a sense of putting in their protections in place or to go hunting if you've already been compromised. That's the idea. Yeah, right. Uh, and apologies just to continue what I was saying earlier. So you get, uh, in terms of deliverables, you get uh, reports, you get uh, ER rules, and you get IOCs. Um, now, uh, how often we push this? I would say as often as uh, we find something. So pretty much everything we find and we analyze, we publish it, uh, which is about, uh, I would say, about between 100 and 120 reports per year. So per year. that's Yes, that's about 10, 10 reports per month. And who is, who is buying and consuming this? You don't have to give the name of the company, but like, are you seeing interest in these reports from big companies, um, small companies? Is there a certain geography that, that are more we, interested? In? We are. We are seeing a lot of interest, I would say, from two, maybe two, three categories of, uh, of uh, customers. On one hand, we have, of course, government customers, which are uh, always interested uh, in, uh, in acquiring uh, threat intelligence. Uh, then we have uh, mostly the big uh, companies, uh, the ma mature companies, which already have an uh, SOC. They already know how to use all this threat intelligence. So this is a second category. And the third category is uh, financial institutions. And financial institutions after, um, I would say that mostly it was after the Bangladesh heist uh, uh, attributed to the Lazarus group that uh, a lot of banking uh, uh, institutions understood the need for doing a bit more than just the say endpoint protection all right you didn't answer the previous question by the way why aren't you finding more big things or are the adversaries going in a certain direction where the skills are not there to follow them uh, are they going in layers of the operating system where uh, traditional tools might not see give me a sense of where they're going where you're at and how you view your ability to track this as it naturally evolves to go in certain different directions? Well, um, on one hand, I think that every time that someone, not just us, let's say anybody out there, uh, exposes uh, some kind of a cyber espionage campaign, the uh, threat actor learns from, from, let's say, how they got caught. And this uh, inevitably causes an escalation of skills, an escalation of the attack. The attacker becomes more sophisticated. He doesn't use, let's say, 
uh, Word documents uh, with stupid macros anymore, he moves to exploits. Then people who are using Word document with exploits, they upgrade to drive-by exploits. Uh, and then people who are using, let's say, drive-by exploits, they uh, move to uh, man-on-the-side or man-in-the-middle attacks. So slowly everything gets more sophisticated. Do you remember several years ago sitting with me listening to General Alexander, uh, General Michael Hayden, sorry, General Michael Hayden doing a, a presentation on, on APT attacks and how he views it. I believe he was just, he had just left the CIA, uh, NSA at the time. But one thing he mentioned is like attackers uh, are part of this pyramid and at the top of the pyramid, the smaller groups are the nation state guys with amazing resources and zero days and all this sophistication and in the middle there's these cybercrime guys uh, doing you know hijacking credit card information and so on and in the bottom there's these irritants like this bigger group of hacktivists and whatever and he warned back then years ago that uh, a lot of the TTPs from the top group the nation state group are going to start filtering down slowly to the cybercriminal guys and filter down and that becomes a significant worry. Is that what you're saying um, we're starting to see now where uh, uh, quote-unquote sophisticated techniques that we traditionally apply to the bigger, uh, well-resourced, well-funded nation-state guys are starting to hit the lower well, groups? Like we, we like to think that uh, not just that, but kind of the borders are kind of dissipating. Uh, like just look at uh, the Lazarus guys, uh, mentioning them again. Uh, they're now uh, dwelling into uh, kind of cybercrime stuff, right? But they also have the capabilities uh, of a nation state behind. So kind of the borders between these different groups, they're kind of dissipating. We see uh, we see hacktivists who use uh, Zero Day. I think there's the amazing case of uh, Phineas Fisher who um, hacked into hacking team. And there is a write-up uh, he put uh, about exactly how this was done. And to actually to achieve that, he... Uh, developed a zero day for a network attached storage device he found in the uh, hacking team infrastructure and that's how he got in. So we're talking about hacktivists uh, using zero day. So we, we like to think that of course uh, General Hayden has an amazing uh, insight from his previous jobs and he's absolutely right about the knowledge going down to the bottom of the pyramid but at the same time I think the borders are kind of dissolving as well. Where are the top of the pyramid guys going? What's the next phase? Again, going to the question that I didn't answer. Mm -hmm. um, what trying, are the I'm things asking, we don't see? I'm asking the same question three different ways. Yeah. What are the things you're not seeing? You, what are you, the things you, you know You know, it's sitting out there where you're not seeing? Right. Um, it's always hard to, to find what you're not seeing. But I kind of, let's say, I have a hunch. <laughs> right. What are, uh, what are your suspicions? My suspicion. So if we look, uh, let's say we we take hints from the things which are happening around us. I'll give you an example. Um, two, maybe even three years ago, uh, Crash, which is uh, uh, the name, the alias of Dimitri Alexiuk, the guy who created the Black Energy Mauler. So two, three years ago, um, he developed a fully working SMM uh, rootkit and he published uh, about it on the internet. This was three years ago. Uh, at the same time, nobody has ever seen an uh, SMM uh, rootkit from uh, an advanced redactor. Do you really believe that no advanced redactor has an uh, SMM rootkit uh, or that we just don't see it? My opinion is just uh, that we do not see it because 
uh, antivirus products do not have the ability to scan outside the operating system. So everything that runs in uh, SMM is invisible to the antivirus products. And you also have to assume there are areas of invisibility. There has to be, for sure. Um, we're talking about, um, let's say, um, hypervisor rootkits could be another thing, of course, uh, maybe not as uh, powerful as the SMM rootkits. Um, firmware implants, which uh, obviously drive all this uh, BIOS firmware kind of malware. Um, Hardware implants, for sure, is another thing that uh, we, we, let's say, we don't see or we don't find too often because uh, we, being specialists in software, we have, uh, let's say, a weakness with finding uh, hardware bugs. Let's but say. we know they exist. For sure, they exist. Yeah, I mean, let's let let's put it like this: Imagine that you go through some um, airport and uh, security check. Uh, uh, security uh, takes your laptop just for maybe five minutes, ten minutes. Uh, and they can do that if they want, obviously. Uh, you have no power to stop them. And then they bring it back to you, but in the process, they put, let's say, an additional chip or just they replace a chip uh, in, our, in your computer or just they reflash a chip. Uh, what is the chance that you can spot uh, a hardware modification? Of course, there are people uh, like uh, Baldi who make uh, X-ray photos of their laptops at, let's say, regularly and then compare the photos just to see if there's like some new hardware inside the laptop but um, i i would say there's like at some point you cannot do this uh, for every piece of hardware that you have and you cannot do it monthly okay so what's what's next how do you as a defender or 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 as a, a tracker try to attempt or try to figure out this is where my defense needs to go when there's this dark spot do you do you feel there's a there's a whole new area in defense where we need to start looking at for firmware implants. Like, like where, where does the security industry go to figure out this darkness? Oh, this is something that I've been thinking a lot about. Um, going back to 2015 when we found the equation uh, hard drive uh, firmware implant. Um, so just to, to recall what uh, was that was... Uh, let's say malware, which has the ability to infect the hard drive firmware and then uh, re regularly to drop malware into the operating system at boot time. And obviously when the malware was written into the hard drive firmware, there's uh, almost zero chance of finding it anymore. So I was thinking, how do you find something like that? How do you find? And uh, the reality is that pretty much any kind of malware at some point, it needs to contact the command and control server. So it needs to do network connections. So this was the solution that I came up with, which is uh, when you cannot see malware running into SMM uh, or into uh, hypervisor, then by just listening for the network traffic, then let's say you have a, a standing chance of catching uh, a compromise. So the natural next step is try to figure out firmware dumps and try to figure out what the communication mechanism is, where they're communicating to. And you might be able to uh, pinpoint signs of infection or signs of activity just based on those call homes. Um, yeah, not, not necessarily firmware dumps, but I would say uh, installing these uh, so-called out-of-band network taps, which is a, a term that Rob Joyce used. 
uh, Rob when, Joyce, uh, one of the uh, a topic <laughs> that comes up on this podcast a lot. That one of the one of the most fun talks I've seen. Um, and he talks about how do you go about he. His argument was like, you know, to really get ahead of things, you really need to tap your own router. You need to tap your own network. Absolutely. Uh, it's it's very, very difficult to do. There are no ready-made tools to do it. There's no such thing as plug and play to do it. You have to have some, all kinds of specialized tools to do it. You're starting to do that? Well, yeah, I started doing this um, in 2015. And uh, I have the traffic for... Uh, my internet uh, connection going back to 2015. So what what I do every time there's a let's say some kind of a big discovery, either from us or from somebody else, I go back to the traffic going back to 2015, and I check pretty much every single uh, network request which uh, emanated from my phone for any of those IOCs. Um, so far, I haven't found anything. I haven't found us any infection, but you know. Um, I've I've always uh, based all my work on the assumption that if my machine is compromised not by just one APT but three APTs. Which segue right into my last question. I know we're running out of time. You obviously personally uh, have to assume you're a big target. Um, you have been uh, tracking and exposing uh, these malware campaigns for many years. You just said that you assume you're compromised by one or two. Uh, nation states. I want you to be honest now, I, and I know that's an easy thing to say. Uh, have you ever been, uh, uh, have you ever been confirmed compromised by an APT no. group that you're tracking? No, I, I haven't been able to find one yet on any of my uh, devices. And are you serious uh, when you say you assume compromise? But like, it's foolish to assume that um, uh, the devices are not compromised. So that's what I said that I do everything under the assumption that uh, my devices are compromised by at least three different APTs. <laughs> Have you ever seen signs of activity that makes you nervous? Not really. I haven't. When um, I'm when I when I'm when I'm driving down the road and my 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 iPhone gets like super super hot for no reason at all, is that mm. time to get nervous? Have you seen that <laughs> kind of thing? I would say we need to look at your iPhone. Uh, like the <laughs> next time we meet, <laughs> uh, maybe we can look together. For one thing, I think that iPhones are pretty much an amazing piece of hardware. And, you know, it's uh, so much more difficult to, let's say, create a fully working attack chain for iOS than, let's yeah. say, for others. Yeah, they do exist. Yeah, true, absolutely. For the right price, I, I think you can pretty much find anything just true. for the right price. So then the question is how much you are worth, of course. Thank you so much, Kostin. There's a, there's, there are a, quite a few things I wanted to talk to you about, but we're already heading into an hour in the podcast. I think I'll get a lot of blowback from my listeners if I don't ask this last question that I ask everyone. I hope you're prepared to answer it. Is it ever appropriate for an anti-malware vendor or security vendor to quote-unquote whitelist or turn a blind eye to uh, attacks from a certain adversary based on geography or based on what the politics is? No, of course not. That's your... Yeah. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> um, I recently went to a, a, a conference where Mikko Hipponen made a, a very good, uh, compelling argument about this. He said, the moment we start whitelisting, uh, let's say, uh, Finnish malware, he's from Finland, uh, the next day, let's say, the French notice it, and they also come and say, hey, can you whitelist our malware as well? And then the uh, Germans come, and then the Russians, and then the Americans, and soon everybody comes, and everybody... Yeah, everybody wants to have that malware uh, white distance. Uh, it's uh, pretty much, you know, um, 
It's a, a dangerous road. It's a dead end. Yeah, you, you, the moment you start going that way, uh, it's pretty much all over. Thank you very much, Costin. Uh, hopefully, we'll get to do it again one day soon. Thank you, Ryan.